Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today we're discussing one of the only books written by a woman who has experienced combat firsthand, Hesitation Kills, which was selected for the Commandant's professional reading list. My guest today is Jane Blair. Jane Blair enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1999. She spent several years in the enlisted ranks before commissioning as an officer through the Enlisted Commissioning Program. After mustering out of the Marine Corps in 2005, she rejoined the active duty corps again until 2007, when she joined the reserves as a captain. As a civilian, she served in various positions as a Middle East regional expert and has lived in various countries in that region. Currently, she's a lieutenant colonel in the reserves, serving in billets, both overseas and here in the United States, as a Middle East foreign area officer. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Becky. I really appreciate it. Very excited to talk today about this. Before we start our discussion, I glossed over most of your background. Could you please tell our listeners a little bit more about your career in the Marine Corps and what motivated you to write your book? Absolutely. Sure. Just like many Marines, I thought I was just going to uh, join the Marine Corps for a short four-year stint. But after being enlisted for a couple of years, my, my plan was to get out after that time. I, I really fell in love with being a Marine. And the rest is kind of history. Just really loved it and wanted to stay for, for a long time. After I served in a in VMU, a UAV unit, which I talk about in my book, Hesitation Kills, during the ground assaults in 2003, I was a little disenchanted with some of the limited career choices for, for women at the time. And so I decided to go into the reserves and look for more jobs where I could have a more career expanded opportunity in what I what I, th- I thought would be my career choice, which is Middle East expertise. But then, you know, suddenly all these jobs started appearing for women after that. And there were a lot of interesting opportunities in the Marine Corps. So I, I have since that time come back and done a lot of active duty time in the reserves and have really enjoyed watching the uh, expanding role of many billet opportunities and opportunities for women at large in the Marine Corps. I mentioned in the introduction that you were the first woman to write a book about your experiences in Iraq. And I know that you're passionate about the full inclusion of women in military life. You you mentioned that just now uh, in your response, in your introduction. There have been a number of changes to the roles of women that are allowed to perform in the military since your book was written. You've just acknowledged you think that's good positive change. Can you give us a little more depth in terms of what you see as being some of those positive changes that we've made over the past decade or so, and importantly, where you see additional work left to be done? Absolutely. I I probably could talk about this topic for about an hour or more, you know, all day. For, <laughs> But to give you a more concise answer than that, I think there's been a lot of good that has come of that. But rather than many people thinking of it just simply as, oh, women now have an opportunity in the Marine Corps, I think it's more of a value of what do women bring to the value in the Marine Corps. And I think that's the value of a diversity uh, that they bring to the Marine Corps. And so that in itself, I think, creates a much better and stronger organization. And so just the ability to, to allow this population to really blossom in the Marine Corps and truly develop a career I, I view as a huge bonus for the, the organization as a whole. Becky, as you know, like uh, there's been many statistics on the diversity of organizations and how that strengthens the culture within. I, I fully expect that the Marine Corps will have the same changes too, that having women and a diverse group of people throughout all ranks in the Marine Corps will bring about 
a great change in the Marine Corps and, and much for the better, just the ability to get different ideas thrown on difficult, complex issues like war and, and operations. I, I think you'll see a lot of positive change with that. On a more practical level, you know, just the changes that have come up about promotions, as I talked about a little bit, but the fairness of having inclusion is very significant. You know, when I first went in, I was looking at that I could stay till major or lieutenant colonel, and that was kind of maxing it. You'd be lucky if you were one of the few women who saw beyond that. And, you know, that was a careful management of your career that made it much more challenging than if you were a male. And part of that was due to the fact that half the jobs you couldn't do before. And so there were natural career limitations. So it's challenging to think before being a female going into one of these jobs that you automatically were excluded from doing half the things. Like what would be the motivation for staying in an organization if you knew that most of the opportunities weren't available for you to do? And that that thought now that the sky's the limit, that women, you know, just based on their ability and, and their talents can achieve whatever they set their mind to is, I think, a, a real huge positive in the changes that have come about. I'd also like to talk maybe a little bit about the physical fitness aspect and standards. It's great that there's been some changes. And I think all Marines pride themselves on having a fairness of ability and, you know, Marines having the ability to prove that they can do what each other do, whether it's in shooting or in physical standards. So I, I do think it's great that there is a standard, but also I'd, I'd caution on making an equal standard for physical performance like the Army's done with their physical fitness test, because I think it comes to really talking about what we want to get out of our physical fitness test, whether that's is that is a measure of that you want to see how good people perform next to one another for, for promotion, or is it a matter of physical fitness to test an individual's ability, or is it a matter of you want to prove an individual is ready? And so before changing the physical fitness standards, I think we need to act and look at what's fair across the board for individual performance, whether that's age, sex, race, or whatever, and come up with a fair measurement of what our goal is as a Marine Corps for that physical fitness test. So great that there's equality in that. Just I think the way to move that is is with caution and making sure that the physical fitness test reflects, you know, the the actual goal that the Marine Corps wants to achieve. Sure. Always tied to this idea of combat readiness, right? Absolutely. The Marine Corps is in many ways is a meritocracy, but if there is ever a a trump card or a deciding factor, it's got to be this idea of combat readiness. Absolutely. Uh, and I would be very interested in your thoughts on this. There are many ways to achieve combat readiness, right? And so maybe one of the questions, not just in the Marine Corps, but we do absolutely see the other services grappling with this, and not just in the United States, but we see this internationally as well, is what are the different elements or the components of combat readiness and do different genders or different physical capabilities lend to different facets of combat readiness? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think combat readiness is an interesting discussion on its own. And with that also is the ability to take care of, you know, the body and mm -hmm. mentally, physically, and be able to perform exercises that make someone physically stronger without breaking them to, to the point that they can no longer perform. And or, you know, they are 
stressing their body so much that it's no longer effective. And so that that is a very strong calculus on, I think, how Marines train. Because, you know, unfortunately, a lot of Marines train towards the physical fitness test for their their physical training, right? And so I would argue that that physical fitness test, if that is what Marines train to, should be something realistic and practical and that's beneficial towards keeping them strong and ready and physically fit. I'm going to shift topics slightly or shift focus slightly. And I'm going to try very hard not to give any spoilers because uh, I want people to read your book. It is on the Commandant's reading list. And so it is now part of the official professional development opportunity offered in the Marine Corps. But you discuss in your book many of the challenges that service members experience both during and after combat. And you touch on things like family separation, harsh conditions, boredom that people go through while deployed And then also the very real and oftentimes very painful struggles of readjusting following deployments. Again, no spoilers because we want people to read your book, but can you elaborate on these topics some? How did that work into your experience and what you identify in Hesitation Kills? Yes, this, you know, this thread when I wrote it in the book, you know, just talking about the struggles, I I think so much has happened since then about bringing awareness about how people handle combat and stress afterwards. And and certainly the more exposure to it, you know, Marines who have had multiple combat deployments and multiple experiences with with just very stressful events have resulted, you know, in post-traumatic stress disorder, as was frequently called. But as people have, uh, you know, began to discuss this more, and it's been brought to light through the media and through just discussion, I I think there's been interesting conversations that have developed about, you know, how Marines, how anyone recovers from the experience of combat, or how does that transform into making them better Marines? And I really like the phrase that's been tossed around, I think, a lot by former sect of Mattis about post-traumatic recovery. That was, I think, really well illustrated in Carl Morlanta's book, What It's Like to Go to War, which was, you know, one of my favorite books about that, which is this idea of not just overcoming, but but sort of embracing that experience and then using it to transform into something that helps you to become a better warrior, so to speak, so that you're not just you're not suffering from that experience, but that that stress and that you know, very intense period. Now you can use to harness into something, whether it's, you know, teaching Marines how to go through that, training them better, having a more agile developed mind, but harnessing that to direct your energies and, you know, become a stronger warrior as a result of that is something that I've learned. And I try to instill in as, as a leader in the Marine Corps with, with my Marines, but also just try to develop for myself too, is this sort of mental hardening. And perhaps I touch on that in my book a little bit about that experience of the mental hardening, but there's certainly so much left to be explored and books left to be written about this topic that I hope help people who are still suffering and haven't found their place and way after combat. You know, it is such an important topic. People coming back, they don't have outlets to deal with all the experiences that they go through in that. And there, there's got to be a way of channeling that energy and creating that into a, a positive space. 
And is that somehow tied to the title of the book, Hesitation Kills? Where did that title come from? Yeah. So in my book, I mentioned Hesitation Kills was kind of a little ditty that one of my instructors during the basic school, which is the officer leadership program right after the officer candidacy school, you know, he said, basically, there's not time to hesitate. Hesitation kills. And there's sometimes sort of like Boyd's uh, OODA loop cycle. You don't have time to really pause and, and deliberate on the choices you make. Sometimes you only have moments and you have to be prepared and, and trained, even though you might not have time before to make decisions in a timely f- fashion so that you are, when the time comes that you've got to execute, you are moving ahead rather than pausing and wasting a moment that could result in people dying. But I think that applies not just to combat, but to, to life in general. It's kind of a ethos, I guess, of mine that, you know, you just sort of like seize, seize the day, like go forth, don't, don't waste your time. You got to make decisions about things. You know, it's interesting to tie that in a, a training or an education context. We had a, a director at the command and staff college who used to say that practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And his point was that one needs to act with intention, that everything that you're doing when you're not in combat is preparation for combat. And so if you simply go through the motions or to tie it back to the physical standards that we were talking about before, if all you do is figure out how to max your pull-ups or how to max your mile speed, that's great, but that might not be the perfect practice that you need to then be effective in a moment of chaos. I hear that connecting to your discussion of, I personally wouldn't call it hardening, I would maybe call it conditioning or discipline, so that we are ready not just to respond, but that we are ready to act with initiative in order to seize the initiative, seize momentum, and force the other guy into responding or reacting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I mean, you could probably make a whole philosophy about, you know, hesitation kills. I'm a big fan of the Stoics mm-hmm. myself, and perhaps there's a little bit of a Stoic message in that about, you know, the the intention behind the message, but also, you know, there there's a thought with Epictetus that there's certain things that you can control and certain things that are out of your control. And so only things that you can control are within yourself. And so why concentrate on things that are outside of yourself? I think it's been very useful during the pandemic to certainly think about that too, is like, what's within my control that I, I can do? And, and in combat, that kind of simplifies things, right? When you think about, well, what can I do right now to control this myself? I can't stop them from shooting at me, but I can prevent them by preparing my Marines to do X, Y, Z. Uh, so thinking of it that way, it, it kind of simplifies everything of, I can control this, but I can't control that. So I shouldn't even worry about all that other stuff. That's out of my control. Once again, another, another discussion for another time. So. <laughs> <laughs> what was the hardest part for you of writing Hesitation Kills? Ooh, uh, the hardest part. I think finding the time to write it was challenging. Mm-hmm. I I was lucky that I had a little bit of leave at the end of my time at my uh, my unit at VMU, and I took my journals and I basically took a dictation machine and dictated it all, but it didn't understand all the acronyms, so I had to go back and handwrite everything. <laughs> and that process took a month and a half to do just to 
to translate everything from the paper to a computer. And then I also think writing a book's kind of a labor of love. You're not just going to do it in one sitting. Well, maybe some people can do that, but I certainly couldn't. You know, it really took the habit of writing every day a little bit, an hour or two, let's just say. I had a goal of doing a thousand words a day. Mm -hmm. You know, that was ambitious. Sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes I was more motivated and did more of it. I just kept doing it sort of like physical fitness or eating just a little bit at a time. And then once I had the manuscript, that was just this huge document that was unedited. And then really the challenge was taking that unedited, you know, mess and kind of proofreading it and going through the editing process over and over and just whittling that down until it it got to be a, a more readable manuscript. And then probably the most difficult part was showing it to someone else, right? Because the criticism of having your first reader critically look at it is, is pretty intimidating. Mm -hmm. And there's that fear of like, well, what if it's not good? And what if they don't like it? Should I just give up? I've spent all this time doing it. So I found showing it to someone early was really good because then they gave constructive criticism and said, well, maybe you shouldn't write it this way or take this out or this is completely, no one cares about this type of thing. If I could do it over again, I would say that I would do that earlier and just have written a chapter and shown that to someone at the beginning and said, hey, what do you think about this? Because my story initially didn't even start about myself. It was kind of going to be a book about a whole bunch of different Marines that I went with to to the basic school with and their stories And a little bit of that stayed in the book. But when I actually got through the publishing editing process, they were like, no, your story is really compelling. It needs to be more about that. Like people want to know more about a female in the military. There hasn't been a lot written about that. And so I I didn't really want to write about that. But then I was like, are people going to be interested in hearing about that? Like I didn't think I did anything that spectacular. But the point was that I had a unique point of view. Right. And so that in itself was interesting and compelling because like, what does a female think? Suddenly a female's in this position and that that's an interesting thing in itself, which I didn't think was interesting, but, but it turns out, wow, you know, that was, that was unique. And so I rewrote a lot of it to write more about myself and make it more of an autobiography. And so that took a long time to do too, then integrate that story into it as well. And what I found then for me, the interesting part was the relationship with the Marines and me as a a female going through this and the dynamics of the different people in the unit that I knew and what that experience was like. I think it would be incredibly challenging, even if you're writing about something that is not personal at all, given the amount of time that it takes to produce just a chapter, not even the entire book. Um, Your point about being nervous when you first first let somebody else read that and give you feedback on it. Because as much as we try to be objective and we want a good product, and so we know that editing is part of that process and making changes so that the audience understands and we have clear communication, it's hard for one's ego not to be associated with the words you actually put on the page. But when those words then become about you and your own life, you don't get a lot of standoff from that. So I think that could be a very challenging part of the writing process, to be sure. Absolutely. Yes. And and to counter that, the easiest part of writing, 
hesitation kills, or I should rather say the best part was the feedback after I was not expecting and just having people who came up to me after and said, even, even in the smallest shred, like, Oh, I read your book. I joined the Marine Corps because of your book. Like was just to me, like was worth writing it right there. You know, oh, that's that exciting. Yeah. Inspiring for me to want to write more and just to be part of that person's journey to become a Marine was exciting. Well, so that is our next question. Do you have <laughs> any additional writing in the works or have you, are you publishing something else now? Well, yes and yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> I am working on a fiction book, which I've been working on for a long time. And I find in, in some ways that's somewhat more challenging because you put yourself out there. At least I feel more as a writer writing fiction, you know, try to make a compelling story out of something that that hasn't happened. I have a million ideas for nonfiction books that I just don't I wish I had the time to, to do that. I find it challenging being a, a new mom with, uh, I have a four-year-old. It's just challenging finding the time to do that. My two hours in the evening doesn't really happen anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a three-year-old. So yes, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm working on it. I, I'd probably start more, less ambitiously with an article. So I, I'm working on that now and working on getting that out. And then I can hopefully find time to, to carve out space to, uh, to continue working on my, my fiction book and maybe another nonfiction book in the future. That's fantastic. And I'll loop back to something that you had said, talking about the writing process. It's something that I stress with students who I mentor for their master's papers. And I think it is critical. Having an output goal for your time, it is easy to say, I'm going to sit down for an hour. I'm going to carve out 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. before anyone else gets up. And that's what I'm going to write. Well, you can fill 60 minutes of time on Facebook and check in emails, right? But this, what you had suggested, I'm going to produce a thousand words a day, or I'm, if all I can do is 500 words, whatever it is, having that output goal, then if you meet that target, if you can write a thousand words in an hour, or if it takes you three hours, you know, then you are motivated to be more productive and to work more efficiently because you're focused on the output and not the time that you're filling in your calendar. So I would say for any of our listeners who are trying their hand at writing and want to participate in the professional discussion related to the military or national security, always focus on how many words you can produce. And then you have to go back and edit because also, as Jane has mentioned, you know, first drafts are, are always painful. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long iterative process to refine one's thoughts into a public piece of communication. But I, I would foot stomp or heartily endorse and, and hear, hear your idea that, that we need to focus on quantity of production that we then go back and refine vice the amount of time on a calendar that we can stow away to work on the product. But to move forward to our discussion of your inclusion in the Commandant's professional reading list, what does that mean for you? Is there any particular significance for you of being included uh, in this year's uh, reading list? Yeah, I mean, this is, it was really exciting, to be honest. One of my Marine colleagues, she uh, she actually found it and, and sent me a text and said, hey, you're on the Commandant's professional reading list. And I, I was really surprised. I was like, what? So I went to check the, you know, Mar admins and uh, saw that it was. And I mean, I'm just, I'm humbled and really honored because that list is really fantastic. I mean, I had a lot of books on that list that were on my reading list to begin with. And so I was really excited. But but mostly I was 
excited about how much the list evolved and the books that were on it were really exciting. I was happy to see how the, the list evolved and its relevancy was incredible. The diversity, of course, the inclusion there highlights just the direction of the, the change in our, our culture that's that's happening. So I was ex- excited to see that. Of course, I think that there needs to be more, even more there. I have a lot of female writing colleagues that I keep in touch with, you know, since I, I wrote the book and there was a lot of criticism that you, you probably are aware about the reading list and just not including more. I, I think baby steps are good. Certainly I would have included on that list um, Shaded Black by mm. Jessica Goodall. That's a great read about her time in mortuary affairs as a female Marine. Her book actually came out around the same time as mine. So I don't know if I could really claim mine was the first book since ours came out at the same time. Also, there's a great compilation book called It's My Country Too, co-edited by Carrie Bell and Tracy Crow. That's really great. It features a lot of different female writers, military writers of all the different services. And it's probably, you know, just a really definitive, great read on different female serving in military roles. So I've, there's there's a, a whole bunch of other books that are really great too. I would just say female Marines need to write more and get their stuff out there more, whether it's in articles or books, there needs to be more writers out there. And I'd love to help anyone who wants to do that too. And just encourage them to keep writing. In your mind, in addition to being more inclusive and diverse, how should the Commandant's professional reading program continue to evolve so that it can keep up with the professional development needs of Marines? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I, I just attended uh, top-level school, I, and I went to uh, residency at the Naval War College, and a lot of the books that we read there, many of the books we read were on the former Commandant's reading list. And... I think that the ability for PME programs such as the uh, war colleges and command and staff should take those books, you know, historical books on wars, philosophy, strategy books, incorporate them into their curriculum as they've been doing, such as Sunsei and Clausewitz, because some of those books aren't easy to digest for the casual reader, right? Like some Marines are just not going to pick up Clausewitz probably and start reading from Mm -hmm the front to the end. It's just probably not going to happen in most cases. And and so I'd say that the PME programs are an excellent opportunity for books like this to be digested and compared together in a forum where there can be discussions and lessons configured around that type of book, which are great for Marines to know. But I, I think it'd be great if the Commandant's reading list contained books that were relevant to the warfighter for example, like what what do Marines need to know as a force and what do they need to understand to, to either fight the next wars or to prevent the next war? And I think that this Commandant's reading list does accomplish some of that. You know, it includes, it was great to see all the tech books and innovation. Those are really relevant for Marines today to know, you know, what do they need to understand to be relevant? All this new technology is coming, cyber, AI robotics. How do Marines embrace that and bring them into the fold? How are we as a force innovative? And there's certainly a lot of the really great books out there that are incorporated on this list. 
that I think will benefit every Marine, not just um, histories or, you know, biographical things, which are great, but the new additions are fantastic. And the leadership books like Sinek and Benet Brown, great books. So glad to see those all on the list. Great. So this is our last question, and it's one that we ask all of our guests. What are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? <laughs> all right. Well, I'm I'm a very passionate reader. So some of the books on the reading list I'm reading right now, like Like War and Kill Chain, I like to read a lot of books at once. So I read a lot of fiction, and usually I've got like two fiction books going while I've got two nonfiction books. I know there's lots of disagreement from people about that. Some people like to read one book at a time. I, I've also gone back to the classics. I just finished Moby Dick and To Kill a Mockingbird, reread some of the, the classics. In terms of the fiction books, I'm reading Where the Crawdads Sing. Mm-hmm. It's about North Carolina, where I live right now. So it's, but Like War is also really relevant, really great. Excited to read that. I've got Benet Brown's Dare to Lead. Really mm-hmm. excited about reading that. I also wanted to add that. I thought missing from the Commandant's reading list were some of those culturally regional books. You know, as a foreign area officer in the Middle East, I think it would be interesting to see books written by people from that culture. So like if you're interested in China, having Chinese authors on there, or in my case, it'd be great to see some fiction books like written by Arab writers like Nagib Mahfouz, Cairo Trilogy, to get an understanding of the perspective of you know, people who live in in that culture, like there's no better way to really understand people, I think, than f- fiction and understanding what their, their cultures are. Because I think in fiction, people are kind of more raw and they can say things a little bit more outrageous than they can in nonfiction. And so to get an understanding of culture, you know, if great power competition is of interest to us, getting some some Chinese accounts of, you know, f- fictional things would be really fantastic or even, even nonfiction, like unrestricted warfare, talking about Chinese irregular warfare perspective would be truly interesting to, to add to that, to that list. But yeah, I love, I love reading. I'm going to try and get through as many of these books as I can on the reading list in the next year. So <laughs> That sounds fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Jane, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Jen Patya Howell. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University.